Warning, the content of the show is left-leaning and offers radical ideas, plus challenging the status quo. Accordingly, we ask you to remain calm and have an open mind. If not, there are other podcast shows that can speak to your conformity. Shut up and sit down. Thank you for downloading this episode of Firebrand. I am your host, AJ. Today I have a guest with me, um, Phil Huckleberry, former co-chair of the Ballot Access Committee for the Green Party of the United States. Um, I have Phil on this episode because the last couple, if not a few of the episodes that I've talked about on Firebrand, as well as on Outfront, I've talked about ballot access a lot and why... It's important and why it's a passion of mine. So I'm bringing Phil on because he has that expertise because of not only his involvement with the Green Party, but his also his own passion for ballot access committee. So, um, Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Phil, why every time I've talked about ballot access and why it's important. Um, I have like my own reasons for it. Why is ballot access an important issue for you? In my mind, it's pretty simple. You can't claim to have a functional democracy if people don't have the ability to vote for candidates that they wish to vote for. And if the ballot access scheme in a given state or a given locality is such that it keeps certain kinds of candidates off the ballot, then that means you don't have a functioning democracy. And so when I've talked about ballot access in the United States, um, how it's really wonky, when I, and when I say wonky is that there's nothing universal. You know, there's no universal requirements to be on the ballot, whether you're in Maine or in California and how it's really, in my view, discriminatory for those who want to run third party or as an independent candidate, whereas you have Republicans and Democrats who have lower signature requirements, and they actually have certain resources in order to get on the ballot relatively quickly and everything. And I've talked about this a lot when Sanders ran, initially ran, how you know he's known as the independent from Vermont, but he's now have that Democrat label. And I've kind of chastised him a bit because in order to have that quote-unquote political revolution, why not run as independent rather than going into the machine that's known as Democratic Party to get those lower standards requirements? What's your thoughts on that? Well, when his decision came out, I I did some analysis of that. In, in fact, I was... Uh, I was looking at that issue before he ever declared, and it was simply impractical for him to be able to run the kind of campaign that he wanted to run as an independent or on a third-party label. So the, the Democratic primaries, that was really the only option that was available to him. And what I mean by the kind of campaign that he wanted to run He's trying to get elected president of the United States. He is not trying to 
form, at least up to this point, he's not trying to form some kind of formal current within the Democratic Party. He's not trying to create some sort of uh, nominal, formal political entity that will survive his campaign. He's running for president. And because of that, the idea that he could have run independent when running independent would have meant spending millions of dollars just to get on the ballot at all would have meant not participating in the primary processes when there's so much media attention and so much more ability to interact with voters as a result. For all intents and purposes, he didn't have a choice. And that's unfortunate, but what we have is a system that not only makes it hard for people to run the way they might want to run, but it kind of forces people like Sanders and even way down ticket in a lot of places, it forces them to declare themselves to be Democrats or Republicans because that's the only real way that they can get elected. In some ways, that's the only real way they can even compete at all. So let me counter that for a second here. So I understand you completely on he had no choice and everything. And I think the same way also because he had no choice because of some states have high signature requirements. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But it could be argued that you're right. You know, he had no choice. However, there's this thing called public financing. And if you raise money in certain states for your campaign, then you can tap into public campaign finance funds in order to do the kind of campaign you want to do. I mean, is that another option that he could have done as an independent candidate? Well, technically, he could have qualified for uh, public finance, for uh, matching. Yes. Uh, even under the rubric of his current campaign, he chose not to pursue that. Yes, he could have as an independent, or if he chose to carry a third-party banner, he could have sought public financing, which would mean limited donation matching, uh, one-to-one donation matching. So that would have been a way to expand his ability to raise money. But you're still talking about having to spend millions of dollars just to get on the ballot. So even if he would have gotten some of that money back, so to speak, through public financing, your entire approach to running your campaign is based primarily upfront on simply getting onto the ballot. And you're having to go out and try to get onto the ballot in a manner by which you're not actually reaching out to people. You're not even making the argument that you want people to vote for you down the line. So it... It's yes, the public financing was available, but it really doesn't change the reality of the kind of campaign he wanted to run and what was realistically available to him. So, when we've talked about ballot access before, and you know, and I've on one podcast episode, I've talked about how there are states out there, Illinois being one of them. Um, I believe I think it's Virginia. I know it's Pennsylvania. I know it's Oklahoma where if you want to run as a third-party independent candidate, because in, in high school or even at junior high or middle school, we were always told you can run for president no matter what and everything. But when you do and you want to run as a third party, 
and it opened my eyes when I came into the third party arena that there are different signature requirements for different races in different states. So A, why are why is it that division of signature requirements? And well, let's start with at that point. I mean why why do like states like Maine, Illinois, Oklahoma, Alaska have all these different signature requirements but nothing universal? The simple answer to why nothing is universal is because it's done on a state by state basis. So when these laws were enacted, they were enacted very arbitrarily, state by state, often in reaction to whatever the then dominant political persuasion of the state was. In a lot of cases, ballot access laws, and not just for third parties, but also the mechanisms by which a candidate might be able to appear on a primary ballot, for example. A lot of those kinds of laws were put into place in direct response to prevailing local circumstances. So, for example, what you get in a lot of places in in the South, uh, Georgia and North Carolina are going to be the two best examples of this. They have brutally difficult requirements for third parties to get on the ballot because they they didn't want any kind of competition whatsoever. They especially did not not want competition in the form of any kind of black party. They wanted to make sure that it was in response to Reconstruction. The goal was to make it very difficult for black candidates to be able to run. Of course, with Jim Crow, it also made it difficult for blacks to be able to vote at all. You also start to see in some other states some things kind of like this. Richard Winger of Ballot Access News has done a little research, and the the fairly difficult signature requirement in Illinois, he believes that this goes back to the 30s and has to do with trying to block the progressives and or the communists from trying to get on the ballot in Illinois. So in some states, things like that weren't really the same level of issues, so you start to see much easier ballot access requirements in some places. And in some states, what you had is is you had kind of more of a classic machine setup running the state legislature that was able to pass laws that simply made it difficult for anyone else to compete in any other manner. So that's that state-by-state approach is really what the problem is here, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to be federalized. Um, the, the states would freak out if there was any attempt made to impose even minor restrictions on what the states could impose for ballot access requirements. So we can't expect to see that anytime soon. So let's look at this Illinois for a moment, because um, I know you've done a lot of awesome work regarding trying to talk about the ballot access here in Illinois and everything. And one of the things I've pointed out to people when, you know, when I go around speaking or just having conversations with people about, you know, about ballot access, a lot well, a lot of people don't know cuz because it's state by state ran and some states have their own election board or it's ran by the Secretary of State's office or whatever that entity is at the state level. So in Illinois, 
we actually have a state board of elections, which is appointed by the sitting governor and everything. And what a lot of people don't know is that these people are also paid. So you have like the chair of the Illinois State Board of Elections who makes $58,000. The vice chair of that committee gets $48,000. And then each member gets $37,000. And all of them get other expenses as well. If people knew about this information more, do you think people in Illinois would really look at changing ballot access in Illinois? No, I think most voters don't feel any kind of personal connection to the issue. And presenting things like, uh, the when you start talking about the way in which administrative processes are handled, nobody really has any context for that. They, there's no recognition that in Illinois you've got a separate board, whereas in some other state, like Kentucky, things might be administered under the rubric of the Secretary of State's office, and then you have a board or something like that. And nobody, I mean, it's totally unreasonable to expect the average voter to have any kind of comparative understanding of how things might work. All you can really do is try and highlight the the biggest excesses of the system, the things that are the most outrageous. We can look here in Chicago and say, well, you know, the Chicago Board of Elections, uh, these people are appointed by whoever they're appointed by. They, they must be super corrupt because they must be part of the Democratic machine and so forth. In Chicago, that's just kind of, you know, part of the process. And people might complain about it, but there's so many other things like that to complain about that it's not, it's not the kind of issue that motivates average voters to take action unless a particular situation arises that can really raise their ire and really get them angry about something that they've seen. And one thing to keep in mind is that the election authorities usually, if such a situation might have the potential to arise, they usually figure out some way to defuse that. And that would be pretty consistent in most states. You're very rarely going to see general voter anger over a decision of an election body. They're smarter than that, in other words. But don't you think that's more about being, uh, quote-unquote, maybe in a very loose way, reactionary? In other words, yes, talking about possible compensation of a board or how processes work or the administrative aspect, it's not very sexy. It ain't sexy at all to the average voter and everything. And because of that, then you get this mentality of, well, we'll just vote them out next year. Oh, we don't like that person, we'll vote them out again next year. It's just like this repetitive cycle that is never-ending. You know, you're on the hamster wheel, and you know you can get off it, but you just can't because you still have to go with the motions. Does that make sense? I mean, because I mean, my, my point is I think if, if you highlight certain policies, whether they're sexy or not, is the way to get to the root of the problem, to solve the root of the problem for that matter. 
think we can use Congress as a good example because the American public detests Congress. However, incumbent congressmen tend to get reelected at about a 98% clip. It would be relatively easy to say, well, everyone hates Congress generally, but they really do like their own congressmen. It's not really that simple. Ballot access doesn't exist in a vacuum. You've got ballot access, but you also have things like the way in which maps are drawn. Those two things interact quite a bit. So what you're doing is you are precluding voters from having very many choices by A, making it difficult for some candidates to get on the ballot, B, drawing district lines in a way such that the district is rigged to be either Republican or Democratic. This is called sweetheart gerrymandering. It's very, very common in a lot of states. Illinois is a very good example of that. And once you've made it hard for people to get on the ballot, and you've made it very hard for the party that's not in ascendance in a given district to even be able to compete, all you then have to do is use money to double down on the incumbent so that even if there is some sort of upstart or insurgent candidate that tries to challenge the incumbent in a primary, that candidate gets blown away in terms of money. So all of these things are used to kind of push back against that. So when you start talking about things like you know administrative problems, administrative excesses, the average voter might look at something and be really ticked off and want to do something about it, and they might even cop the attitude of, oh, we got to vote all these bums out. And then when it comes time to vote all these bums out, they literally have one person's name on the ballot for a given office. They're, I mean, Illinois, again, great example. At the state legislative level, our state legislature is so dysfunctional, so messed up, and yet... 60% of the state legislators that were elected in 2014 had no opponents, primary or general election. Well, what, what's a voter supposed to do when presented with something like that? They're, they're out of luck. So, I mean, in Illinois, we do have many um, state races that do run unopposed for one reason or another. But how do you motivate someone to run for office? You know, especially if they really want to run third party or an independent candidacy. Um, because, you know, people you've talked to, people I've talked to, people we've both talked to together on, that, you know, we try to motivate them to run, but they feel either disenfranchised because this feels like the system goes against them. I think the place you have to start with is... What is the theoretical goal of a third-party candidate or an independent candidate? Is that candidate's goal to win election in the current election cycle? Is that candidate's goal to win election two or three elections down the line on the presumption that they have to get their name out there and really work it over time and then eventually they'll have the opportunity to get elected? Or is it just for the fun of running for office? Because if it's just for the fun of running for office, it's so much easier to participate in the primaries than it is to get on the ballot as a third-party candidate. 
So what you are kind of stuck with is this idea that if a third-party candidate, if an independent candidate in a given election cycle does not feel that they would have a very good chance of winning election, which is a relatively fair thing to say most of the time, you have to present it in terms of their being able to either A, really advance their issue agenda, make it part of the discourse and have that turn into something important down the line and influence the incumbent or whatever, or B, they have to kind of be running as part of a broader goal of building some kind of a presence. And maybe that's a local party structure for a third party. Maybe that's not a formal political party, but it's some other kind of base that operates outside of the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, maybe it's a state-level political party. They have to feel like they're able to help build something. And you know, my experience has been in the Green Party over you know, 15 plus years at this point, it's really hard to take those local races and turn them into building blocks if you're super isolated, if you're just one, I mean, there's 118 state house districts in Illinois. If a given party runs one candidate in one district out of 118, that candidate might get 10, 15, 20% of the vote, but they haven't directly contributed to building something statewide because they were so isolated. That's where it gets really hard to talk people into, into running and trying to build something because you have to do so many things all at once. And this is where the ballot access issue is a real killer. And I can speak to this from personal experience. When I ran for state representative in 2004, we collected about 2,500 signatures to get me on the ballot. We did more work to get me on the ballot than we did once I was on the ballot. I exhausted my volunteers just in the signature collection process and made it very, very hard to follow through, hard to do anything. And that's one of the, because of things like that, it's so difficult for any kind of insurgent third party or maverick presence within the Democratic or Republican parties to build any kind of short-term presence. They have to exert so much energy and squander so many resources simply on the mechanical processes of existing before they can even get to the part where they're able to really build anything. That's what's really unfortunate about the way ballot access works. I mean, and that's like the one thing that was also a wake-up call for me in, you know, also my work with the Green Party as well is that there's really two campaigns. There's the ballot access campaign, and then there's the actual campaign. And it seems like more effort is in that ballot access campaign where you do have to put more money in, you have to exert all your volunteer resources, then once you get to the actual campaign itself, then you're just left with your core volunteers. And even if it's on that bare bones campaign, even on a shoestring budget, um, in a two or three way race, you know, it's still an uphill battle and everything. So I guess, you know, if you were, say, appointed ballot access 
chair for the state of Illinois, what are some reform changes you would do to kind of, you know, curb the ballot access for third-party independent candidates? There are some aspects of the Illinois election code which are not just onerous, but frankly really stupid and probably unconstitutional. And those should be the ones that go out the door first. Such as? So uh, there, there was a recent federal court case that struck down the what's called the full slate law. And the full slate law says that a third party that wishes to come into existence at a given jurisdictional level, either statewide or at a county level, must field candidates in all races at that level. So that means that if you want to be you know, an Orange Party candidate for state's attorney in a given county, you would have to have also you, you would have to have run with a recorder candidate and a circuit clerk candidate, and those may be things that you're not interested in and nobody else is interested in. That's an example of a law that we can definitely say is unconstitutional because we just had a federal judge rule it unconstitutional a month ago. So with that as kind of a leading example, a couple other things that I think are flatly unconstitutional and just need to be changed, there's a very onerous notarization requirement when it comes to petitions, and that is that every single petition sheet needs to be individually notarized. And that sounds like it's not that bad and it's not such a big deal, but when you're talking about a very large-scale petition, the time and energy that's spent chasing notaries and just dealing with the mechanics, that's very wasteful. Uh, that notarization requirement and other things like that are tricks that are used to get candidates thrown off the ballot. It means that you have to kind of, it means that a low-level candidate for a low-level office needs to retain an election attorney to defend themselves. And this gets into the third part. Illinois has something called the challenge system. And in the challenge system, your petitions can be challenged by some voter that resides in your district or county, whatever level you're running at. The challenge system is such that the challenge lodged against you might be nonsensical, but you are going to have to retain an attorney. And if you're talking about someone that is running for, say, a small county board district in some smaller downstate county, and they're you know, having to go up against something like that, and they're having to retain an attorney, that kind of expenditure might cost them as much as everything else they were planning on spending. And so those are all things that have to change that I think are all simply unconstitutional on their face. Then we get into things like Illinois has a 90-day signature collection period. There's absolutely no reason for that. Most states have signature collection periods of a year maybe two years. There's no reason for there to be that 90-day limit. It makes it so that everything is just this you know, mad panic within that 90 days if you're trying to collect for a really big petition. That should be expanded out. It should be at least 180 days and probably should just be a full year. There's no, there's no compelling state reason why it couldn't just be a full year long. The individual signature requirements at a lot of jurisdictional levels 
should be changed, and not just for independents and third parties. Uh, it was about 10 years ago that the General Assembly in Illinois ratcheted up the signature requirements for state legislature for the primaries from a flat 300 for state representative and 600 for state senator up to 500 for state representative and 1,000 for state senator. There was no state need to do this. The old numbers had been in place for a long time. The only reason those numbers were increased was to make it harder for candidates that weren't party establishment approved candidates to petition their way onto the ballot, particularly in black and Latino areas where it's harder to get good signatures because you have higher transiency rates, so it's more likely that signatures will be thrown out and so forth. So across the board, the signature requirements need to be slashed. And I think that the state, and uh, not only the state, but also the local election authorities through changes in the state law, should be able to move to a place where they can simply take in a petition, determine whether the petition is clearly facially invalid or not. And what I mean by that is, even though it's been fun in the past when someone submits one signature to get on the ballot and nobody challenges them and they're therefore on the ballot, and that's you know funny and so forth, it would be a lot easier if an election authority could, instead of relying on this challenge process, could simply make a facial determination about a lot of these petitions. You lower the signature requirement. You make it so that it's a lot less likely that the election authorities have to deal with any kind of process above and beyond just cursorily scanning. And then here's the other thing that you should do is you should make it for the primaries in particular in lieu of petitioning requirements, you should allow a candidate to simply pay a fee in order to get on the ballot. Depends on what office you're talking about as to what fee that should be, but that's the way it works in several states, that you have the ability to pay, say, $500 to get on the ballot for state representative, or instead of paying the $500, you can go out and collect 200 signatures. So there's an either or, but that $500 bit, one of the things that would be really nice is if instead of Illinois wasting so much money in this electoral process with all of this, back in 2006, when Rich Whitney was running for governor of Illinois in the Green Party ticket and the Democrats challenged the petitions, the amount of time that the State Board of Elections, the consultants that they hired, the people that had to be involved at the county and municipal election authorities, so much time and energy was wasted on processing that. We estimated that it was in the multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money wasted on a petition challenge that was total junk. When it was all said and done, we had 10% more signatures than were needed, and we weren't even done with the process. So there's all kinds of changes that could be enacted, and some of them are, not only are they common sense, because they're rooted in democracy, 
some of them would actually be revenue positive for the state. They should just be done immediately. So, I mean, this is so my next question is not more about ballot access than actually being on the ballot, particularly in the primaries. One of the things that I've had many conversations with, with people up to this point, particularly about Trump, in that if you are part of a national political organization like the RNC or the DNC for that matter also, that even though there's some sort of a autonomy within that political organization or what states and other organizations can do and everything, there's still that level of hierarchy to say, and you know, you shouldn't run. And I can think of maybe a couple of examples where that's happened in other organizations where they pull someone to the side and be like, you know, you're not the person, why don't you think about this next year or maybe run for something else? Or they were just on the very extreme side of what their party is about and therefore that organization tried their best to get them off the ballot. I mean, what's your thoughts on, you know, Trump being on the Republican ticket and do you think the RNC should have taken some sort of authority measure to just not have him be the candidate? Well, I think the first thing that we need to be realistic about is that elections are, are kind of like everything else. They they don't exist completely on their own. It there is no perfect solution. There's no there's no perfect democracy. There's no perfect way to conduct presidential primaries. I think we can see with the Republican primary right now a very imperfect way of doing it because you've got silly things like some states are winner-take-all for delegates, and some states use congressional districts. When you have a process that nobody can wrap their minds around, then you got a problem. But more directly to the point, uh, set aside presidential for a moment and, and think of it more in terms of, say, let's say a state Senate race. Uh, a U.S. Senate race in a state like California right now where California is operating under this reprehensible top two system. And just kind of briefly, the top two system is where the two candidates of any party who in the primary in June win the most votes for U.S. Senate will wind up being the two candidates on the general election ballot in November. So it could be two Democrats on the ballot in November for U.S. Senate. It could be two Republicans on the ballot. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a corny system that has been demonstrated to backfire in a lot of cases, but that's the system that's in place. And what we can see is when you have a situation where there's, say, six Democrats in the field and one Republican in the field or anything like that, you could have something really foolish happen where the Democrats split their vote so much that on the ballot eventually is a Republican and a Democrat that's not really representative of the Democratic Party at all. You could wind up with 
And I think we're seeing with Trump right now a situation where he's not won an outright majority in any state primary, and yet he's on pace to win the nomination, even though he only seems to have about, you know, maybe 40% support nationally. In a one-on-one race between Trump and Cruz, between Trump and Rubio, between Trump and Kasich, really seems like Trump would lose all three of those. But the system is kind of set up in such a way where it, that doesn't matter. He's still the front runner. Because things like that exist, because there is no perfect democracy available, because election authorities avoid things like runoff elections, because nobody has been willing to institute instant runoff voting, except a couple isolated municipalities like San Francisco and Burlington, Vermont, you wind up with these situations where the best way to keep an election from totally running off the rails is to convince a candidate to drop out. And usually, if, say, the Republican Party approaches a candidate and, say, and says, well, look, there's three candidates for this Senate seat, and you, are, you candidate X, are very similar to candidate Y, and we think you two are going to split the vote, and that's going to let candidate Z win, and you don't want that, and we don't want that. How about if you step aside, give candidate Y the best shot of winning this primary, and then we'll make it up to you by, you know, giving you a clear path to run for Congress in some district or giving you a clear path to run for, you know, Secretary of State in our state. Those kinds of deals might rub people the wrong way, but once you have already accepted a political context in which you've got these first-past-the-post elections where you can win a primary with 22% of the vote, if you've already accepted all that, and the general public isn't all up in arms about things like that, then any kind of back-of-house horse trading like I just described, not only is that going to happen, but there's a limit to how angry people can or should be about that happening because it's been created by a system that is just so bonkers in the first place that everything winds up just being relative to how crazy it all is. Phil, do you have any um, words of wisdom for voters out there or people who are concerned about um, the electoral system in itself? Because it just seems like every year, if not every day, I hear people like, you know, why should I vote? Does my vote really matter and everything? Um what can you say to the listeners of this podcast? It's not a good idea to think in terms of your singular vote in a singular race at a singular time and try to evaluate its quote-unquote worth. It's better to think of things broadly. And that's an admittedly hard thing to do, but this is the framework that I've used and I've explained to people for a long time. In 1964, Barry Goldwater was the Republican nominee. He was running he was running against Lyndon Johnson and Goldwater got smoked. And 
the presumption at that point in time was that Goldwater, this arch-conservative Republican, in the process of getting totally smoked in that election, kind of brought down that wing of the Republican Party along with him. It didn't work out that way. After 1964, Republicans and people who hadn't necessarily been active Republicans, they looked at the political landscape of the 60s in which Johnson had gotten overwhelmingly reelected in 64. The Democrats were in control of the House and Senate. The, the, country, the Democrats were far and away the strongest political party at that point in time. And these people, these Republicans, these conservatives, these evangelicals, they said, we have to rebuild from the ground up. And what they started doing in the late 60s and into the 70s they started aggressively searching for candidates, fielding candidates, and getting them elected for offices like local school board and for city councils in smaller cities. And once you had some council members, and these were mostly nonpartisan offices, and that's one of the things that, that really should be emphasized here. They were focusing on getting people elected more so than they were focusing on any kind of partisan angle up front. Once they had elected school board members, once they had elected city council village board members and things like that, those people then had the quote-unquote relevant experience to run for state representative and to run for state senator. And then in some cases, those people were able to kind of parlay that into running for Congress. By 1980, which... When we're talking in electoral terms, when we talk about a 16-year gap from 64 to 80, that's not that long a period of time. You know, we're not talking about a lot of presidential elections here. Those people that had built from the ground level up had built such a strong network and such a strong system, they got their man elected president when Reagan was elected in 1980. And since 1980... The Republican Party has been the dominant political party in the United States, even though when you look at national opinion polls, more people identify with the Democrats than identify with the Republicans. The Republican Party is still the dominant party. They have had much more party discipline at the lower level. They have been much more serious about continuing to field candidates for low-level office for making sure that they get state legislators elected across the country. That's how people should look at whether their votes matter or not as part of some kind of a movement. If there's no movement like that in place and you're not being given the ability to even have a selection of, you know, beyond the, the offices at the top of the ticket, then it's very understandable why people come to the conclusion that their vote doesn't matter because they're voting within a scheme where they're not even really being allowed to support candidates that they want to support. But when you get to these small towns and these small places and you have any kind of hotly contested races, those elections wind up mattering not only locally but as part of a broader trend because those are the people that are going to be your next state legislators, that are going to be your next congressmen, 
that are going to wind up being very influential at state house levels, very influential in Washington, maybe not today, maybe not two years from now, but four, six, eight years from now. And if you look at the Democratic and Republican parties as they stand today, the Republican Party today is a complete mess. The ascendance of Trump has demonstrated how bad internal party loyalty is, how broken down a lot of the internal structures are. They don't really know where they're going. There's a void there that could be filled, and Trump is the one that's wound up filling it right now. Trump is going to be a fleeting moment. He's going to leave an even bigger void behind because he just bulldozed through so many things. And we don't know where, that, where the Republicans are going to go from there. The Democrats are not a whole lot better off when it comes to internal party structure, loyalty, and hegemony. They are in some places, but in a lot of places, the reason that you, you've got situations where, and this is the best way I can put it, Bernie Sanders has a legitimate shot at this point to become the Democratic nominee for president. There are 534 other people in Congress between the House and the Senate. Bernie Sanders is to the left of 534 out of 534 other people in the House and Senate. The Democratic Party right now, its office holders are not representative of its voters. If Bernie is representative of 50% of the electoral base of the Democratic Party right now, then that means that half of the Democrats in the House and Senate should be at least as far left as Bernie Sanders is. And that's not the case right now, and that's not going to be the case after November of 2016, but you're going to start seeing a lot more hardcore progressives challenging a lot more of these neoliberal kinds of Democrats. And it's these trends, and it's this pushing to get people elected to local office and then having them work their way up the ladder. These things are super important in changing how things are going to look two, four, especially eight, 12 years from now. That's why people's votes really, really matter. It's for the long haul. That's how people should think about it. Phil, I want to thank you for taking your time. I know you're very busy, but I want to thank you for being on this podcast episode. I'm very glad that you asked me to be on. I really appreciate it. No, not a problem. And, uh, and I'm, this is a very personal note. As I said, um, Phil and I know each other, and I really think he's a really awesome person, not just on a personal level, but you know his... Him knowing history and the politics, and I've really grown as a political strategist in my own right because of Phil and everything. You know, and I'm, this is not a suck up moment. This is genuinely true. And so, if you don't know Phil, check him out on his own Facebook and other things that he's written about <clears throat> about ballot access and politics and everything. So, I just want to say that. Um, also, check out ballot access news that Phil mentioned. Uh, Richard Winger does. Um, Google it. It's a great read. Richard is really on top of the things. He's the foremost expert on election law in the United States and everything. So 
With that said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say thank you for downloading this episode of Firebrand on this podcast network and everything. Um, keep checking us out. Stay updated. Um, download Pod and Radio Addict on your Android phone or the podcast app on your iPhone so you can stay up to date with the other episodes of Firebrand and other episodes on this podcast network. Stay strong. Your vote matters. And if you're voting today, go out there and vote. If not, vote in your state. So thank you. Have a nice day, everybody.